0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball campus in Los Angeles and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, and it is really my pleasure and honor to welcome my friend and colleague and neighbor, Reverend John Edward Cager III. Reverend Cager began his ministry at First African Methodist Episcopal Church in Los Angeles, where, among other programs, he developed a taxi voucher program for seniors and disabled persons. And he is the former director of the Center for the Study of Black-on-Black Crime. Reverend Cager now serves as senior pastor at Los Angeles' historic Ward African Methodist Episcopal Church. And he serves as president of the Los Angeles Council of Religious Leaders and of the AME Ministerial Alliance of Southern California. Reverend Cager, John, it's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. I'm grateful for
1: you having me on the show. You and I
0: were introduced to each other by our mutual friend and colleague in justice work, Rabbi Joel Thal Simons of the Jewish Center for Justice. So I think it's appropriate for us to begin our conversation about justice. And so I want to start off by asking you about nomenclature. In this moment of civil and human rights struggle in the nation, and in some degree around the world, I've noticed that there's really no name for this experience yet. Are you comfortable with us simply referring to this moment as Black Lives Matter, or
1: do you think there's a better term? I think uh, the strength of the moment and the strength of the movement is its decentralization and its lack of a name. Previously, movements have been derailed because once they're named, they're targeted. (laughs) Once they have identifiable leaders, they're bought off, chased off, shot off, ran off, or whatever. And I, I think one of the reasons we are looking at Uh, weeks of uh, protests uh, rather than the days we would see previously is because uh, of the amorphous nature of it. There's no identifiable target. Yes, there's some leadership from Black Lives Matter. There's some leadership from Dignity and Power Now. There's some leadership from some kind of the old organizations uh, that have hung around for the last 50, 60 years. So everybody has a piece, but no one has the reins. And that's that's why it's lasted so long.
0: So decentralization is the key. It's this major strength, and uh, we can call it any number of things. I want to talk to you about religion in this moment. If you, at least if I, read and think about what I hear from mainstream media, I'm struck by what feels to me to be a decidedly secular tenor to the endeavor, at least as is filtering through the media outlets that I'm getting. And I suspect it's true for other people. So I want to ask you, what does religion or faith in particular, bring to this struggle
1: um, that, that people need to know about and to be able to benefit from? I, I think we need to deconstruct the question. Um, as you mentioned, there's a decidedly secular presentation to this moment, which is you know distinct from earlier iterations of protests when there was a very, very, very strong religious underpinning. Uh, I listened to uh, the podcast of Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, and she interviewed uh, Andre Henry, who was an activist. And one of the things that he said, which struck me uh, as a 57 year old uh, orthodox normative black preacher for the protesters now, the event of protest is their church mm. and that, that, that speaks to a few issues for, for us middle-aged and past middle-aged religious people. Number one, the energy that is in the protests, their uh, nimbleness, their uh, ability to react quickly, uh, their ability to bring passion at a moment's notice mm-hmm. is precisely what almost every religious community I know is looking for. The generation that is in the streets is the generation that is missing from our pews. That's a problem, not for the protesters. That's a problem for our religious communities, because all of us come from religious traditions where it was the energy and the passion of young people in the Christian community. We call them the Joshua generation. It was, it was Joshua's generation that got into the promised land when Moses' generation was dying out. And so the, the the question is, how does the faith community capture the energy uh, and, and capture the participation of those who are protesting? Clearly, uh, they're 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 able to uh, carry on the protests, sustain them. Uh, without the leadership of the church. We can't say that, that people of faith aren't involved because people in faith are involved in almost everything that goes on there, but it's without the leadership of organized religion. That tells us, A, something about the leadership of organized religion. You know, maybe we, all of our faith communities need to assess what are we doing wrong that, that they can exhibit their passion in the streets and not within the walls of our, 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 faith communities. Um, it also challenges those of us who are uh, faith leaders to, if we're not leading, uh, the parade, uh, if we're not leading the March, don't we still have a responsibility to be in the parade, to be in the March. And for some of us religious leaders, uh, we have pretty big egos and, and, and we have often, uh, Take the attitude that if we're not in charge, we're not going to be there. Uh, The Bible teaches and all of the Abrahamic faiths that humility is a virtue. And some of us in religious leadership need to humble ourselves, go out there, observe and learn from these young folks. And believe it or not, take some of what is happening in the streets and bring it back into the temple, into the shul, into the synagogue, into the church, into the cathedral.
0: That you know that first of all, I find that compelling and inspiring that a major leader such as yourself should be aiming for humility for this greater cause. Um, I find it very moving, and thank you for that. I want to now let you know about one of the Jewish struggles, which is that we, in the progressive world of American Judaism, which is in fact a majority of American judaism, we we fear that the justice work that we all care about doesn't actually um address the distinctively Jewish um heritage that we're also trying to promote in synagogue and so sometimes you hear people saying justice work is great we should be doing it but but what about the uniquely Jewish traditional uh heritage and voice if 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 all it is is just generic social civic justice. Um, and so I think that there's this bringing it back into the synagogue that you that you st- spoke about, bringing it back into the church. A lot of Jewish leaders feel like that's already happening. In fact, it's happening to the exclusion of the tradition.
1: Does that happen in black churches too? That happens in black churches, white churches, brown churches, Asian churches. It's a generational struggle it's the battle of traditionalism uh, versus uh, uh, ministry in the contemporary moment. Um, I, ha- I have a church where I have a lot of older people who are financially supportive, and I have younger people who are not as financially supportive, but are, but are very energetic, and the argument is frequently, uh, uh, we need more young people, but the young people don't give money. So you need to listen to the old people. And and we love the tradition. Um, I am not an expert on Judaism. I do know that the worship that took place in Solomon's temple was different from the worship that took place in the post-exilic temple. You I did. do know that Jews in 2020 don't worship like Jews in 1520 or 1020 or 520. And if we are all believers in God Almighty, uh, then we must understand that God has <laughs> God has the ability uh, to adapt the way he receives our worship. I remember uh, going to New York City in the late 60s and 70s to visit my older sister. And in the late 60s and 70s, New York had somewhere on the order of 60,000 a uh, uh, Jewish, primarily uh, Yiddish-themed delicatessens. Now it's down to under two hundred, and you can't find the folks who had the, you know, traditional tongue sandwiches with the, you know, etc. Do I lament the fact that I can't get those kinds of sandwiches anymore? Or do I go ahead and say, okay, well now I've got to eat sprouts and, 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 and fruit plates and, and, and not eat as much gluten. Well, the fact is, doggone it, I'm 57 years old. I don't need any more fatty tongue. I don't need to eat all that bread. It's bad for me and I need to make a dietary change. Similarly, as much as we love the traditions of our faith, as much as we love the old liturgies and the old rituals, and we love to be taught just like, you know, we we, we want to pass on what our grandparents and great-grandparents and the the, the patriarchs of the faith passed on, um, ministry is in the moment. God operates in, in, well, he operates in all time, but he operates in the present time, in the present age. And it may just be that those young people don't need those pillars that we've stood on. It's a different world. It's hard to take uh, for those of us who are in the last half of our life that maybe uh, uh, (laughs) our traditions are not as relevant as, as we want them to be. But God's will is mutable. You know, before the flood, we weren't allowed to eat meat. After the flood, he said, no, you can eat anything as long as it's dead and there's no blood running in it. If God can change, why can't we change?
0: Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. Okay, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the intersection specifically between the sociology of our moment, this crucial, crucial moment, and churches. What is the central message that Black churches need to be conveying to their own
1: communities in this moment? Let's um, have uh, uh, two understandings. The first is that the Black church, like Reform Judaism, is not a monolith. Fair and there are, <laughs> you know, there are as many different uh, uh, points of view and perspectives in the black church as there is in in, in Reform Judaism. Having said that, from a, a, a normative position, a, a position of relative orthodoxy in, in the black church, what we should be saying to our people is change is good and be willing to empower people to make change. What has always crippled the black church is opposition to change. Don't get confused. When Martin Luther King Jr. uh, and uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and all of the uh, uh, pillars of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s were operating when they were meeting in black churches, Those churches weren't full. Uh, The support for the civil rights movement in the black community was about the same as the support for George Washington during the Revolutionary War. There were a third who were for it, a third who were against it, and a third who were ambivalent. And so if I have a message for my colleagues in the black church is history is watching. Make sure you're in the third that's for it this time. Flipping the coin a little bit,
0: what do... White communities, again, granting your point about diversity, it's well taken. What do white communities need to learn from Black churches that we won't otherwise learn?
1: Racism is an effect of classism where we see incidents of racism throughout human history, it has generally arisen as a justification for one people to economically exploit another people. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the import of African slaves into the new world, it only happened after, uh, attempts to enslave the indigenous people, proved ineffective because they knew the terrain too well and they could escape, you know, wherever the explorers landed. When they landed in Easter Island, they tried to exploit to enslave the folks there. They tried to enslave the Maori. Didn't work out. So they found someone else to exploit economically. Um, understanding that, uh, I would say to my white colleagues, there are three things you need to teach. Number one, you need to teach that racism is wrong. It's just that simple. And you need to teach that racism is wrong categorically. Uh, that will mean some changes in our, in our language, and our terminology. Uh, I'm a funny guy. I know I grew up in a community called Shaker Heights, which in the 60s and 70s was kind of known as the, uh, the, 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 the great ethnic experience. We had blacks, whites, Jews all together. And, and I can tell you some great Italian jokes, some great Jewish jokes, some great black jokes but I don't tell any of those to my kids or my grandkids because in order to change the world, I have to eliminate uh, those attitudes. Even though are really funny, you know, I, I, in, in order to change the world, got to change the language, got to change the attitudes, got to teach what's right and what's wrong. Number two for, uh, uh, for, for white people in general, when you understand that racism is wrong and that it's just an, an outgrowth of classism, you know, you need an underclass so that you can be an upper class. Uh, you have to get back to teaching that God has created all of us equal. None of us are any better than any of the others. Some of us are different. There's strength and diversity. There's nothing wrong with our differences, but we can't teach that different is other. Because when you otherize someone, you dehumanize them. And once you dehumanize them, that makes it much easier to exploit them financially, sexually, politically. When you start using words like those people, when you start referring to other groups as those people, that is the first tip that you have a racist and a supremacist attitude. And we have to wipe those out and understand that we are all uh, created equal and have the same value to God. Third thing we have to do is understanding that racism is a child of classism. Is understand that if I have harmed you, it's biblical. If I have harmed you, I have a responsibility to undo the harm. Similarly, if it, even though I may not be a racist, if I am enjoying the fruits of racism, if my great 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 grandfather Uh, cheated your great, 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 great grandfather out of a business and, uh, uh, and, and you are now living off of the proceeds, I can take you to court and I can make a legal claim on I was exploited. Similarly, if you have people who for hundreds of years were exploited for labor, exploited sexually, exploited politically, and then for a couple hundred years after that uh, uh, were legally exploited uh, through Jim Crow laws and and were held back, the damages that they suffered were actionable. If you want to change the temperature in any room, uh, be it a room full of uh, a liberal West Side Los Angelinos or a conservative congressmen from South Carolina bring up the issue of reparations for the descendants of black slaves. And uh, you might have the most incredible kumbaya moment going on before then, but once you bring it up, everything freezes. And, 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 and that's something that uh, my white brothers and sisters will have to examine. Do you have a theory or a position or a
0: uh, a way of opening the conversation about reparations that you would like to share and we can talk about?
1: I am recently uh, become an adherent to the uh the call for reparations um not from a financial standpoint but because It's a sign of repentance. America's God is money. You know we we you know my my great evangelical friends, uh, my 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 great uh, uh, reformed Jewish friends, my great black Pentecostal and Baptist and Methodist friends. You know, make no mistake, we may serve God, but America serves money. And in every industry, including religion at times, money equals. Respect, and so you have got two issues to look at. How do you value the damages of two hundred and forty-six years of slavery, and then another hundred and and twenty so years of Jim Crowism, and then uh, another forty years of the current generation? Well, people have actually valued it. <laughs> you know, a simple search, uh, a Google search, will come up with uh, numbers that uh, social scientists and uh, economists have come up with and uh, I think the most acceptable amount uh to to my uh very bad mathematical reasoning is about one point four trillion dollars now while that is a a tremendous number, remember we've given reparations to the uh the 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 uh, Japanese Americans who were interned. We've made reparations in other cases, officially as a government, paid the money out. But to the African, uh, uh, the descendants of African slaves, and then freed persons who were illegally abducted and put back into slavery, uh, General, uh, I believe it was General Sherman, who suggested after slavery, we give every African American person, uh, family, 40 acres of land and a mule. What, what we know how many people were in slavery, what would be the value of those 40 acres of that mule 160 years later? Probably about 1.4 trillion dollars. I, I really want to
0: work with this because, um, because of the opening comment that you made in this, in this uh, topic of reparations, which I think is very insightful and it captures how big a political hurdle it is, because you basically said, bring me the population of Americans who see themselves as the most open to the hard work of anti-racism. Bring me the people who see themselves as the most caring about this issue on a human and a civic level. You put them in a room, And you talk about reparations to them, these people who define themselves in the most favorable possible way for this conversation. And the truth is that even those people, they're going to resist and they're going to resist mightily. So I want to talk about what, what goes on in those conversations that is such a hurdle. When you see in their eyes that they're beginning to
1: shift their opinion, even though they see themselves as your allies it all traces itself back to classism and as 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 people of faith we all know what our texts say you know if you're a landowner and you 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 you, you harvest your crops you know you don't glean to the edges of the field because you leave something uh, for the poor for the widows um, if you have uh, uh, purchased land uh, from another family you know that after 50 years in the year of jubilee you know uh, uh, or in after 7 years in the sabbath the sabbatical year you know you got to give it back to them and 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 because god is against the building of generational wealth and oligarchical fortunes it says that in the old testament says that in the new testament says that in three or four other uh, faiths including all the abrahamic faiths god does not want anyone to have uh, a significant economic advantage over anyone else, which is completely counter to the American ideal, and the American ide the, the American ideal has become get all you can. If you remember the 1980 movie Wall Street, Michael Douglas, what was his, what was Gordon Gecko's line? Greed is good. I have a a, a, a good rabbi friend who laments that when he started uh, his rabbinical career, he had plenty of young people in his congregations who wanted to be doctors and teachers and wanted to be in helping professions and, and help make the world better. And now he says, everybody wants to be a hedge fund manager, you know, and become a billionaire and a mega billionaire. So for the sake of the conversation in that room, what does that mean? All of us, and Black people too, have become perverted by uh, the desire for, by, by greed and avarice, and everyone in the room, even if they don't have a nickel in their pocket and would not be harmed at all, everyone comes from the standpoint, well, what will I lose? You know what advantage will I lose by giving them this money? I'm not getting good. They don't deserve this money. They, you know, they need to get out and and get jobs. My grandfather came over here from Latvia, from Italy, from wherever, with nothing, and 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 had to start a well. No, he didn't come over here with nothing. He came over with white skin, and that white skin was an advantage, and has continued to be an advantage. I'm looking at you now, Josh. You could be British, you could be French, you could be Polish, you could be Russian, you could be Algerian, you could be Omani. I can't tell, you look at me, you know, there's a significant amount (laughs) of (laughs) African DNA in me. I'll share this story and it's off topic. I have a a relative, uh, one of my nephews, who works for a major, major bank. He went to transfer to a position in that bank in Orange County, California. Uh, Because the young man is fluent in Spanish and has a, a, uh, goes by a nickname that is Hispanic sounding, when he sent his resume to the division uh, of that bank, to transfer to Orange County. They looked at his resume, looked at his credentials, Uh, his academic credentials were impeccable, his production credentials in the bank were impeccable. They brought him over with just a phone interview, gave him the job. When he arrived uh, uh, to to his office in in Orange County from Chicago, uh, 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 there, there, there was a little disbelief because when he walked in, they were expecting, you know, a white or, or, or Cuban or Anglo-looking, you know, gentleman. And what they got was this tall, very dark-skinned uh, young man to work in Orange County. And one of the human resources persons pulled him aside later and said, if they had known you were Black, they would not have hired you. They would not have brought you into this office. And so uh, in the context of Uh, you know, of the the conversation in the room, Uh, whether the people think, you know, they don't deserve it, you know, we can't afford it. The whole mindset is they're getting something that, that, that I should be getting. We see the same thing working out in our American elections. We, (laughs) America is different from, most developed countries and that we have a sizable portion of the population that votes against its own self-interest because of resentment politics. I don't have it, but I doggone sure don't want them to have the opportunity to have it. So I'm going to block it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, um, I want to close this out and bring it down to the human level. Um, And I want to hear from you as an individual, as a friend, as a a fellow human being um, in this pivotal moment. I certainly hope it's pivotal, meaning I hope it means we pivot to change. And um, I want to point out that you spoke out strongly when our nation confronted Charlottesville. You spoke out strongly when nine innocent People were murdered at Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. And I want to hear you speak from your heart now. What's going on in the mind and the soul of Reverend John Cager when you experience this moment of human and civil rights struggle? Well, I have to
1: say, I have been emboldened uh, by two things. Number one, the fact that the protests won't die. Um, We're now uh, going on to a month uh, when typically this would have passed out of the news cycle weeks ago. What it tells me is that there is something beyond the normal uh, that is going on here. I choose to believe that it's providential and that there is, there is some divine intervention somewhere that is causing the debate to be raised uh, to a level where it will not go uh, out of the news cycle. The fact that uh, Senator McConnell <laughs> is pushing uh, a, a police reform bill, however strong or watered down it may be, this would have been unthinkable a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. I'm also uh, emboldened by the fact that the struggle uh, uh, now is multi-ethnic, it's multi-generational, it's multi-faith, which is what we saw the last time we got transformational change, which was about 60 years ago. It, It was not just a black movement in 1963, in 1965, in 1961. Uh, it was a, it was a multi, uh, uh, multi-faith, multi-ethnic movement. And because of those, I am hopeful for change. Now understand this, we will not see 180 degree change. We will not see 90 degree change. We will not see 45 degree change. But America is big. And to see change at the level of five degree, a five degree ch- course change, May not seem much for people who are looking for us to get rid of police departments, but a five degree change over the length of time makes a huge difference in the direction that the country goes. And I may not see all of the changes that I need to see uh, within the span of my life, but I've got kids. I've got grandchildren. Hope to have great grandchildren. And if the changes now lead to better quality of life, better access, better opportunities for them, I'm grateful for the, for the five-degree change.
0: Well, uh, John, here is to continue change for the better. Um, here is to continued partnership among all people of goodwill and good faith uh, to see it through. And speaking personally, I can say it's a pleasure to, to be a part of it in some way, and to be your neighbor in Los Angeles, and uh, to experience your leadership. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me, and um, I look forward to many lively and rich
1: conversations with you. My pleasure.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts, or at the College Commons website collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.